Tonight we're going to be in 1 Samuel 19. Now we saw in 1 Samuel 18, King Saul starting to turn on David, and tonight that attitude solidified, and we'll see even God gives King Saul another chance to turn to him. But by chapter 21, uh, King Saul chooses, again chooses, by an act of his will, this point of no return in his life. Very tragic. We're going to start with verse 1. It says, Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. So King Saul starts to ramp up his, um, you know, hatred for David. He pretty much is open with his staff, uh, you know, I'm going to kill David. One of us has to do it. But Jonathan, King Saul's eldest son, is loyal to David. He's loyal to what's right, even at peril to his own life. It's amazing how Jonathan had two things going on at the same time. By showing loyalty to God and showing loyalty to David, uh, he not only was putting his life in danger of his father, as we'll see later, but also he loses, in a positive sense, the kingdom, because he would be the next in line if somebody did kill David, if it was to happen. So this is an amazing, I just love Jonathan, one of my favorite men in the Bible. But uh, he, furthermore, he's going to find out from his father, he's going to pump him for information and get more details on how he's going to kill David. So the question for us is, how far would we go to do the right thing? What about when it could cause us serious problems? Many of us may still do the right thing, but what if it can cause us or cost us our lives? Would we still do the right thing or would we try to save our own skin? Oftentimes we make decisions that we say, well, I'm going to do the right thing for God. But I tell you what, Christians in other nations, just making simple decisions and doing the right thing can literally cost them their lives. Something, uh, an aspect we don't always get in Western Christianity. But amazingly, John or Jonathan was good, but his father was wicked. And haven't we seen this in the kings of Israel, in the kings of Judah? Josiah's grandfather, Josiah's father was no good. And I don't mean me, I mean King Josiah in the scripture. <laughs> I'm a sinner and I, you know, I ask for salvation, but, uh, and, and thankfully God has brought it to me. But the point is that Josiah, and I named my son after him because the man was very impressive. Right? The father, the grandfather, and then the sons were also wicked. <laughs> so he's kind of like sandwiched in the middle of these, a wicked generation before him and wicked generation after him. But what we can see is it only takes one generation to see real change, whether in a positive or a negative way. We don't have to, and we've heard of those generational sins or familial sins, or this is what my family's always done. We don't have to be in bondage to those sins and that evil. I mean, if that's you, and when I speak, there's maybe about 30 of us here tonight, but many listen on the CD and on the website, and um, you don't have to buy into the lie. You don't have to believe the hype. You can be free. You don't have to go down that road. Verse 4. Now Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. 
And the Lord brought about a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in past times. I really believe this was a character builder for David. What a strange time in his life. You know, the king loves him, he's playing the music for him, then the king takes a spear and, and wings it at him. I mean, talk about hypervigilance. He always had to be on his guard. And then he would be chased, and then the king would say, oh, I, I'm not going to hurt you, and come back. And what a weird situation. But I believe it was something that built the metal in David, M-E-T-T-L-E, not M-E-T-A-L, so that he could be qualified to be the king. And it's amazing how God will allow things to happen in our lives to build our character as well. God may have a position. Got too excited there. I lost my wedding ring. Um, God may have a position for us, and we're just not ready for it right now, and God has to do a work. And nobody enjoys going through that, but it's something that's necessary to happen. So Jonathan reasons with his father using what? God's word. Jonathan says the word sin three times. And I looked and I like to go back into the Hebrew and the Greek to make sure I'm not missing anything. And the word is to, to miss. He uses the word to sin three times in his discussion with his father. Now, I've been asked questions about counseling. And I would say that it's fine as long as the basis is within God's word. Otherwise, it's worldly wisdom. We can never go wrong when we fall back on God's word, and we can never go right when we fall back on the wisdom of the world. So Jonathan is able to reason with his dad, and his dad comes to the conclusion that David won't be killed. But it's not long before King Saul goes back on his word and is the purveyor of the one trying to kill him. This guy's very, you know, he's, he just goes back and forth. Verse 8, and there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. We see David is always faithful. He's always faithful with the nation. And even with all these troubles and all these burdens he's bearing, it's amazing that he can go out and fight the Philistine. Right? I mean, you've got to be focused as a soldier, as a commander. And this was a tough enemy. So there was a lot of pressure on David, but he was always faithful. King Saul is at it again, trying to kill David. And what we see really here is that you can do everything right or everything according to God's will, and still have problems, and still have trouble, and sometimes more so when we serve the Lord. Some have this notion that's not in Scripture, that if they're really following the Lord and trusting the Lord, things are just going to go smooth. That's not true. <laughs> Satan does not care for those that are not saved, that are not trying to take souls and bring them from the dark side to God's kingdom. He doesn't care. He, I mean, he only cares about those trying to bring those souls over. He doesn't care about those in the world. And we covered this last Sunday about when we served the Lord, we talked about Timothy. He had a hard time in the, in the church of Ephesus, and Paul had to encourage him. 
right? But he was trying to do everything right. And we find here as well, King Saul is, trying, is really risking the security of the nation because of his maddening jealousy. He's just not even focused on running the country. Remember, this is the king. Poor judgment. Decisions have to be made. Orders have to be uh, disseminated. Uh, he's got to have his leaders do certain things, and all he's concerned about is killing David. And this is that really the scorched earth mentality. I studied, um, I find World War II very interesting. When the Germans moved east towards the eastern bloc countries and Russia, the Russians, Russians burned villages. They burned natural resources so the Germans couldn't uh, get too much ground. And then when the Germans were being pushed back, the Germans did the same thing. It was amazing there was anything left of Russia. They started burning natural resources and villages. It's this scorched earth policy. It doesn't matter what's right. It doesn't matter what makes sense. It's just a maddening mindset. As a matter of fact, uh, if you count the Russians killed by Stalin, killed his own people, you're talking about 100 million deaths in World War II. By two, two men perpetrated this unfathomable. Imagine looking and seeing out a sea of 100 million people. That's how many lives were taken. So this is, this, this, this is again, it's satanic. When somebody goes into a bus and straps explosives on themselves and blows up innocent uh, children, right, and, and women and children and, and civilians, it can only be satanic. It's amazing how even today in our culture, uh, they think that's weird that we talk about the devil. Well, who else could cause people to do such sick things in the world? So there is a good and there is an evil. It's obvious. And Saul runs into this evil spirit issue from the Lord again. Now, I looked, at, I looked this up again, and I've talked about this before. There were uh, Hebrew colloquialisms, you know, figures of speech back then, um, metonyms, Semitisms, you know, which we're not familiar with. But basically what it means is that it was more allowed. The evil spirits came, uh, Saul drove God out of his life, and that void was filled by these demonic beings, and they controlled him. The Bible says that we can give ourselves over to a debased mind. We can do that. And that's a bad thing, and the demons will take over. Right? For what God doesn't fill, the devil will. And there are some that may be listening to this, and um, maybe they've had a chance. Maybe they've had an opportunity. Maybe they've been exposed to the word. And if God is trying to minister to them or you, it's something to take note of, to, to pay heed to, because there's still time. King Saul was maddened by his jealousy of David, and David was a threat to King Saul's material world, the temporal world. Now, two points here. Number one, it's sad because King Saul didn't have God in his life anymore. So guess what? All he had was the material world. And, and the truth is, when we have God, we don't need this relationship or that relationship. We don't need this job. We don't need this money. Because God is so much more greater than all of those things. And the more we mature in our lives, the more we realize that these things are not absolutely necessary. You know, it's amazing. I hear, I've heard it a few times. My wife, when she counsels a young woman, and she'll say, it may sound offensive, but it's not. She says, I don't need Joe. I love Joe. I support him. I'm loyal to him, but I don't need him. I have the Lord. And she's right. I'm not offended by that at all. It's the truth. It's the truth. Unfortunately, sometimes we, even as believers, start to put things in our lives and elevate them above God, right? And they become idols in our lives. 
So those who only have this world, as in uh, King Saul, fight like mad to hold on to it again because it's all they have. When we look at the power brokers of the world, when we look at the lawmakers sometimes, when we look at the mobsters, it's all they have. And sometimes even it's in the church, right? You ever see some of these guys where there's a big, uh, you know, and you've seen it, these big ministries and they crumble because of some scandal and they'll deny it at first and they'll fight and they'll kick and they'll lie and they'll cover up and they'll do things that are illegal because they don't want their empire to crumble because they've so forgotten about God, even as so-called Christians, that this is all they have left. And this is what King Saul is going through. In a sense, King Saul was a ministry leader. If you were the king of Israel, you were a ministry leader. The second point is, it reminds me of a, kind of like a, a dysfunctional domestic violence situation, you know, where someone goes, he made me so mad that I had to hit him, or she made me so mad that I had to hit her. Now, listen, nobody makes us do anything. Sometimes people get on our nerves. Sometimes they wear against us. But what they bring out is something that was already inside of us. Pretty funny, huh? It's the truth. You know, if somebody really rubs you the wrong way and it causes you to act in a violent manner, it's because it was already inside of you. And somebody just brought it out. And actually, believe it or not, sometimes that's a good thing. Because we get to see what we look like. Wow, I flew into a rage. Why did I do that? Why did that person push my buttons? Because there's something in there that's dirty and it still has to be pushed out. It's a problem. If it isn't your spouse that does it, it'll be your boss. Or when you have kids, it'll be your kids. Or your poverty, or your situation, or your family. It's an excuse. It's in there. Now, I have a theory. I have two theories. A lot of laughs on this one. Apparently, it's uh, definitely hitting home. But what God doesn't fill, the devil will definitely take advantage of. He always takes advantage of a nice vacuum where God's not there. But conversely is that when we are filled with the love of God and the more we're filled with the love of God, these things like rage, anger, hatred, um, desperation, um, you know, for self-image, these things slowly start to wash out. It's like a dirty vessel and a cascading flow of water. And the water goes in and it, it gets dirty. But as it keeps flowing in, it, it pushes a lot of that dirt out. And eventually, that vessel is filled with clean water. And that's the way we should be filled. Right? And I've said to some, and they say, ah, oh, why am I still dealing with this? Why do I still have this issue? Why do I still have this baggage? I've been a Christian for so long. Continue to let God fill you the love of God fill you, the purpose of God to fill you. And these other things will slowly but surely be washed out of your life. It's like being in a, a spiritual shower. I spoke with a man recently who, we had a very interesting conversation. He was in jail, he had trouble with the law for years, and then he became a Christian. And he says, you know, I came out of jail and people are still trying to push my buttons because they know my past. He goes, but I'm not going to let them do it. It's all about the love of Jesus. That's impressive. Because I know many in that lifestyle, and it, there's so much rage and anger that builds up over the years that it's hard to push that stuff out. So I, I prayed with the man, and we, we shared a few things, but it was a good conversation. Verse 11. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window. 
And he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. He, he wasn't going to wait for him to get better. He goes, bring him bed and all. I, he's got to be over here, so I'm going to kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. Then Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? So this is Michael, um, King Saul's daughter, David's wife, trying to save his life. Now in verse 13, she uses this image to imitate a person's shape or to imitate David's shape. Uh, And I had to look through this because it really struck me curious. Uh, And she put goat's hair for the head and put probably the blanket over him or whatever. Very creative. You got to give her that. But the image is translated into idols. However, I looked up the Hebrew word and the word is teraphim. And in some translations of the Bible, it's a transliteration. It just, it doesn't give you the definition. It gives you the Hebrew word. So we've heard that word. I've heard that teraphim before. Now I looked it up and the the root of the Hebrew means to heal or to cure. Becomes more fascinating. So could it be, and apparently it was pretty big because it was almost or close to the size of David. So you got this big statue that she has and it probably was a false god that some prayed to for healing. Right, And this is in David's house. And we'll get to that. So pretty fascinating. Who knows? She could have had another one for wealth. She could have had another one for, um, you know, who knows, a good harvest. There could have been all these big statues in the house. But this is what's going on here. And we're going to talk about influence a few times tonight. But what was that thing doing in David's house? Now, I have no doubt that David loved God because it's clear in the scripture. I'm not going to rewrite scripture here. But why didn't that rub off onto his wife? And we see her free will. We see that even in a married couple, they can be unequally yoked, right? That one person could be on fire for the Lord and the other person isn't. And that really presents a challenge in the home. But on the one hand, she did uh, do what was right and try to save David's life. But on the other hand, where was she when it came to the Lord? You see, married to a believing spouse won't get you into heaven any more than going to church will or doing good works. It has to be a personal relationship. And I believe that when we uh, see God, that it's, you know, we see him corporately uh, when, when the time comes, but we also, he deals with us as individuals as he does now. And there's going to be no defense attorney, no advocate. The only one will be Jesus if we've trusted in him, not our spouse not our church, not our pastor, but it will be Christ alone. Now, could it be that David had so much going on, constantly running from Saul, that he couldn't really pay attention? Maybe she put it in the closet, I don't know. <laughs> so, so this is what's going on. Or is it possible that he failed to lead his wife like Adam did? And we'll talk about that a little bit this Sunday. But again, at least, at the very least, they were unequally yoked. She counted on the flesh, on worldly things, like her father, the king. And she also was devious like her father. So you see a little bit of this, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. But we're going to see that the influence of God later on with Saul's men is pretty impressive, and we'll get to that. So verse uh, 17 is thought-provoking because she basically says that 
Well, I, she did save David, but when she's pressed by her father, she says, well, he said he would kill me. So in one sense, she says something to save her own skin. But in another sense, it may say something about her, but it also says something about her father, the king, as well. Maybe she knew that in a fit of rage, in a fit of paranoia, that he might kill his daughter. So she was like, I better say something, because dad looks pretty hot right now. Uh, so this is what you're dealing with, with King Saul. And you really get to learn a lot from him from the scripture. You really can put a good picture together. Verse 18. So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. Now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. Then he went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Sichu. So he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they are at Naoth in Ramah. So he went there to Naoth in Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him also, and he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he, the king, also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and laid down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? This is a, an odd portion of scripture, very unusual, but we'll try to break it up here. I think there's some good uh, advice here. But David flees for his life, and where does he go? Who can he trust? We spoke about trust on Sunday. Aside from Jonathan, which was too close to the king right now, he had to go a little further out. There's always good old Samuel. Good old Samuel. He was always there. Even in his old age, he was still doing the Lord's will, by the way. He didn't have a, a title. He didn't have an office. But he wasn't done serving the Lord. His, you know, listen, he had his moments with his kids. But this guy, I believe, was, was a good man. And even till his olden days, he was still serving the Lord. Oh, that we would be like Samuel. And some of us are. You know, always knowing they can come. Someone can come to us for safety, advice, encouragement. It's a good feeling and it's a good ministry. I can tell you that my wife is always willing to take in a stray animal or a stray person at any time. As a matter of fact, she's uh, starting to bug me about this, this pit bull puppy. Uh, and she, it has nothing to do with the story, but, uh, you know... <laughs> I remember we, we ended up with uh, this bunny, and she said, I, I couldn't resist. I went to the pet store, and the bunny stood up on two feet and looked at me, so I, you know, as if to say, help save me. So this is how we get our animals in the house. You know? Verse 20. But there were a group of prophets prophesying, assembled together to seek God and to be used by him. These guys were interested in revival for their nation. And I asked the question, where is that desire today? Because our nation is in trouble, isn't it? Oh, that we would hold out and, and ask the Lord, let me start with me, the person in the mirror, help to change me. And then let's be concerned about moving out in concentric circles, you know, to try to do something, to, to be praying, to be interceding, to be fasting for this nation. Very important. And there was always a remnant, no matter how bad the kingdom was, 
in the history of Israel, there was always a bunch of people that were a remnant and, and sought the revival of their nation and sought for the Lord to, to change things. The word prophesying, again, I looked that up in the Hebrew, means to speak or sing by inspiration, of course, of the Holy Spirit. So number one, when we prophesy, we can be speaking God's word, forthtelling. We can be foretelling, number two, or speaking about future events. And we would only know that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Or three, interesting, and this is something I didn't know until today, that prophesying can also mean to sing praises to God to just burst forth and be singing praises of devotion, devotion to God. And the Psalms are awesome because, you know, a lot of hymns are based on the Psalms, those devotions to be set to music and to sing to God. Now, let's t- try to take this apart. What do we have here? We have that the king sends three successive groups to, uh, to get David. Now, probably it says messengers, but they probably were military men. They were probably soldiers. And they become so influenced by God that they start prophesying. Imagine that, that these soldiers all of a sudden stop with their, uh, I was going to say with their rifles. There were no rifles back then. But they stop with their swords and, and they sheathe them and they're overcome by the influence of God. And these soldiers now, instead of looking for war or to take back a trophy, they're singing praises to God. Again, it must have been an unusual sight to see this. So God's influence, it, uh, these soldiers now are neither useful to take David and they're not useful to King Saul because he keeps sending successive groups. And now Saul says, I've got to go myself because I don't know what's happened to these guys. Right? So what can we make of this? Number one, I would just say this. Do you ever think about the unnamed people in the Bible? The messengers. Right? They come into God's presence. We don't know their names, but they're so influenced by God that God merciful allows them to change their hearts to be praising him and give them a chance to clearly see right from wrong. And don't be surprised when you're in the presence of God or when you're reading God's word that this stuff starts to rub off on you and I as well. God is is powerful. But what will we do with it afterwards? Because we'll see that even King Saul, later on, he starts with this prophesying and this amazing transformation. And by the next chapter, he's maddened by Um, you know, by anger and wrath again. Now, understand that, and it's not a big deal, but I looked at this and and I looked up the Hebrew word for naked and it could mean partially. So it could mean he could have been completely naked, which would have been weird, or probably what it means is that he took off of his his kingly robe, his, uh, you know, whatever denoted him. If someone would see him, they would see him as royalty. Whatever that was, that, that came off. Uh, what, what else? I don't know. But I would just look at this, and I think the point is, uh, as if God was to look at him and say, you're in my presence. You're not the king. I'm the king. Let's get that straight. <laughs> you know? And God has the right to do that. Remember when Moses was in his presence. He said, take off your sandals, Moses, for you're standing on hallowed ground. What? what? I, I, I didn't see a sign. Well, it's because I'm here. That's why it's hallowed ground. I love that about the Lord. Wherever he goes, his influence, even on the ground, Moses, take off your sandals. That's disrespectful. That's, that's wild. Um, Saul, take off your kingly garments. Put that sword down. You're in my presence now. I love that about my God. And he's probably prostrate. He's laying on the ground, probably on his face, in a state of worship. Now, I look at this not as God's anger. I look at this as God's mercy. He gave him another opportunity. 
to be in his presence, another opportunity for those moments to praise God and for his mind to get right. But again, God gave us free will. He gave us free will. He gives us the opportunity to live victoriously and not in bondage to sin. He gives us the opportunity to be a returning prodigal time and time again. See, it's a misnomer to say that God sends anyone to hell. We'll send ourselves there by our will, our stubbornness. But God gives us every opportunity, I believe, even these unnamed messengers, we would have to continually resist his overtures to find ourselves in hell. He's a merciful God. Now, I want to leave you with a sobering scripture. I'm going to go all the way to the New Testament. In 2 Peter 2, and I'm going to give you the context. It is the context of what Peter speaks of when he's speaking of the false prophets. However, or the false teachers. However, um, I don't know why that, you know, that cannot be applied to others as well. There's no reason why it can't be. He says in verse 20, if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, have known to, than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to a true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow Sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Don't let that happen to you. When God gives us a chance to escape the world, this is very sobering, that we stay out of the world. Because we can dabble back into the world and re-entangle ourselves. And for those that maybe have used the things of God for their gain, like the false teachers or others who keep dabbling and dabbling and playing back and forth, that's a dangerous place to be. To taste the goodness and the fruits of God, and then to return back to vomit, which is another word for puke. And it's disgusting if you've ever dealt with it, and that's why it's used here. To go back and say, oh, what a feast. Let me have some of this stuff. It's nasty. It's nasty. Have you ever seen somebody sick, or you've done it yourself, the stomach acids are in there, and I'm being graphic here, but it, the smell is, is repulsive. And that's why it's used here, because that's the way the world is. After we take, taste the fruits of Jesus Christ, after we taste of his feast, and then go back into the world, it's puke. And it can only come from ourselves. You look at King Saul and Judas, they both had miracles happen to them. They both partook of amazing supernatural events. The influence was overpowering, but in the end, they exercised their free will and they refused the things of God. Matthew 7 is quoted many times, and I love this. You can be a part of a religious or even spiritual system, but if it's not a heart change, if it's not a giving yourself over to the Lord, it doesn't mean anything. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. King Saul did ministry in his own strength. He had God's ministry. He was called to be a shepherd of God's people. And he said, I got it. It's cool. I don't need you. You know, you, you just wonder what runs through somebody's mind when they do this. And I want to caution the listeners that when we come to God and God reveals himself to us, we stay in that circle of influence and not step outside the circle. I don't understand, and I've seen it, many backslide. They come back into fellowship. They backslide, they come into fellowship. 
And they keep doing this multiple times. Now, listen, I, trust me, I'm not saying this out of being haughty, but when I came to the Lord, I didn't go back. There wasn't a period of a few months where I said, hey, I'm going back into the world, I'm not a Christian. Once, once I knew what I was saved from, I, I, I couldn't leave. And there were temptations, but I, I couldn't take them. Right? The prodigals that, that leave, and they come back, and then they leave, and then they come back. I don't get that. It's a dangerous place to be in. King Saul dabbled with salvation and things of God and eventually was taken over by demonic forces. And you know, even through a lesser extent, maybe we're not um, doing this kind of stuff, maybe we're not going back to our puke, but maybe we uh, are involved in the things of God and we keep just seeing what the world has. You know, I, you know, I like what Jesus, and I see this, I like what Jesus have. I like the whole heaven thing, but, but, you know, my neighbors have this, and this is what I want, and I see that, and I'd like some of that, and we, you know, we just keep, we're double-minded. You know, James tells us that God doesn't even hear the prayers of the double-minded, because they're unstable in all their ways. We need to put our hands to the plow and not look back. So I just pray that, again, I would say that probably nobody in this room falls into the, the seriousness of what King Saul did. But maybe we can look at our own lives and see if we're dabbling back and forth and how that's making us unstable. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we...